Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you this morning. My name is Bryce Hales, and I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. And uh, if you've got a Bible with you, I'd love to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. We uh, was out of town last week. Our, uh, like many of you, our family was um, uh, kind of getting in a, a week of vacation before school starts um, next week. And uh, we got to travel with family up to Northern California and enjoy time of rest and uh, refreshment and relaxation, but it's always great to be back here with you guys. I love being with you and worshiping with you. I love being your pastor. I love being with you on Sunday morning, so thanks for being here. <laughs> Let me invite you to stand with me as we give our attention to God's Word. We're going to read, I'm going to read for us Genesis 16, starting at verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do with her as you please. And then Sarai dealt harshly with her. And she fled from her. In verse 15, And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is, believe it or not, the word of God. Let's pray together. Almighty God, would you speak to us now? your ancient word and by your living and active spirits, would you help us to understand more fully who Jesus is, that he might be formed more fully in us, we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated, please. The story was told that there were two younger fish that were swimming along one day and they happened to pass by an older fish going the other direction and the older fish uh, not looked at the two younger fish and nodded and said, Morning, boys, how's the water? And kept swimming. And the two younger fish kept swimming along until eventually one of them turned to the other and said, What the heck is water? That was a joke. <laughs> I wasn't sure if that was going to work. But their point was uh, originally told by author David Foster Wallace in a graduation speech that he gave in 2005 at Kenyon College. And uh, he also had to explain what it meant, which makes me feel a little bit better. He said that the point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious important realities in life are often the ones that are the hardest for us to see and even harder for us to talk about. 
This morning we're going to talk about what it means to wait on the Lord. And I don't know about you, but the phrase wait on the Lord is one of those phrases that strikes me as something that might look beautiful on like a greeting card. But it, in practice, it's just like these beautiful, religious, trite phrases that don't seem to really connect with everyday life. Wait on the Lord. Okay, yeah, yeah, sure, I got it, but I'm really busy. And so I think that we have to start by talking about waiting on the Lord by just trying to look at the water that we swim in. Because uh, we live uh, in a culture that prizes busyness. You know, a busyness is the first thing. It's a greet, like when we greet each other. This happened this morning a couple times. How are you doing? I'm really busy. Uh, we wear it like a badge of honor. Somebody once said that our busyness is a lament, uh, is, is a boast described as a, or, sorry, let me say it again. Our busyness is a boast described, uh, disguised is the word I'm looking for, <laughs> as a lament. Okay, did that make sense? <laughs> we wear it like a badge of honor. We say we're busy because it means we're needed. People value us. We've got so many things going on. People need our time. It's the water that, was, that surrounds us, touching every aspect of our lives, and yet goes so often completely unnoticed. We've got to try to see the water that we're swimming in if we're going to have any success in understanding what it means to wait on the Lord, or why there would be wisdom in it, or value in pursuing it as a discipline. Imagine that you were on vacation, and for a week you leave your home, and you go somewhere beautiful with your family, and you turn off your phone, you close your laptop, you're totally off the grid. It's beautiful, it's restful, you spend your days doing very little, you go on long walks with your wife, uh, you eat uh, you know, great meals. Uh, it's a very restful day, and then you go to bed at the end of a long, restful day, and your sleep is restless. And uh, every night you find yourself waking up for an hour or two and unable to get back to sleep. If you're wondering, this is partly autobiographical. <laughs> What in the world is going on? Why can't I sleep when my day has been so restful? Well, it turns out that our busyness is actually, uh, it functions in our lives a little bit like an addiction. Um, we are so busy that our body responds by producing adrenaline that we need to live life at the pace that we are used to living it at. And so um, we use our busyness often to, uh, to avoid having to face our own thoughts, and so we stay busy. Our body responds by producing the adrenaline needed to sustain that kind of pace of life. And then you go on vacation, or you actually rest, and that your body's still producing that adrenaline, and it's got nothing to do. And so at the end of a restful day, you can't sleep. Uh, not too long ago, a friend talked to me, told me that... Um, he had been having chest pains, and his wife made him go to the ER because she was afraid he's having a heart attack in his early 40s. And uh, he went to the hospital. He's in the ER, and the doctor runs some tests and looks at him kind of half apologetically and tells him that there's nothing wrong, but that this problem is actually very common. <laughs> and if that uh, was supposed to make him feel any better, uh, it didn't. She gave him an article published in the Boston Globe in 2013 in which Dr. Susan, Co Susan Coven from Massachusetts General Hospital wrote this. She said, in the past few years, I've observed an epidemic of sorts, patient after patient suffering from the same condition. The symptoms of this condition include fatigue, irritability, insomnia, anxiety, headaches, 
heartburn, bowel disturbances, back pain, and weight gain. There are no blood tests or x-rays diagnostic of this condition, and yet it's easy to recognize the condition is excessive busyness. Now, your busyness may not take those particular, you know, may not look exactly like the way I've just described. And yet the reality is that we live in a culture that primes us to value busyness and efficiency. And so when the Bible says, wait on the Lord, (laughs) don't even take it seriously. Why in the world would we want to wait on the Lord? If we're ever going to understand what those words mean, we're going to have to take a look at the water that we swim, the water that touches everything about us, and yet goes largely unnoticed. If you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, we're in a short series on the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And uh, what I've been trying to kind of uh, explain to you is that Abraham, the book of Hebrews tells us, is, is sort of the model of what it looks like to live a life of faith. Uh, what does it look like to live a life that flourishes despite your circumstances? You know, everybody uh, is kind when times are good. Everybody's generous when the economy's, you know, going like crazy. But what does it take to live a generous you know, compassionate, kind life? What does it take to thrive uh, when circumstances don't go your way? Don't go your way. Uh, It takes faith, and that's what we see in the life of Abraham. And faith, contrary to what our culture believes, is not just kind of irrational belief. Faith is actually something to be lived. And so we've seen over these last few weeks that... uh, That faith looks like leaving, and God calls Abraham to leave the land that he called home. Uh, And for us, it doesn't necessarily mean to move somewhere, but it means following God into the world uh, with our kingdom vocation in order to be a a blessing to others. And then we've seen that uh, if you live that life for any length of time, you will encounter resistance, and you'll be tempted to abandon ship and get off this whole kingdom of God program because it's hard, and so... God calls Abram, and he calls us to remain. And then last week, Trevor talked about what does it look like to have proper confidence in God? How can we know that God is going to uh, be true to his promises? How can I know that this life of faith is really worth it? How can I have confidence that I'm not wasting my life? Um, And Trevor helped us see last week that uh, God would sooner tear himself apart than be untrue to his promises. And next week, we're going to talk about what it look like to trust God when the, when, the, when the promise finally comes true. But this morning, we're going to talk about the discipline of waiting. Um, the discipline that has just gutted me for the last uh, year or so. As God has uh, arranged circumstantially uh, things in my life to force me to slow down. If we're going to live a life of faith in a culture that is defined by its busyness, we're going to have to learn how to slow down. We're going to have to learn how to have a a slowed down spirituality where we wait on the Lord. So look at the passage with me. What does this tell us about waiting and why it's important and what it actually looks like? Well, over the past several weeks, we've seen this story of God calling Abraham, and Abraham uh, left Ur of the Chaldeans, and he arrived at Haran, and then God said, you're still not to the place that I've called you to go yet, and so I want you to leave your family if they're not willing to go. And we've seen how God called Abraham, uh, Abram, Abraham, God changes his name, 
it's easier for me to just call him Abraham. <laughs> Um, but God, God, as he calls Abraham, he gives him all these promises, and he says, uh, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to uh, give you a land to call your own, and I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. Um, I'm going to be your God, and I will be with you, and you will become great, and you will become a nation. But there's a problem, because all of the promises of God to Abraham are contingent upon one thing happening. It's contingent upon him having a son, an heir, an offspring. And Abraham is 75 years old when God calls him, and he has no children. And Abram and his wife, uh, Sarai, Sarai, Sarah, um, she's 65, and, um, you know, I, uh, that's, that's older, right? <laughs> it's it's kind of old to be having children when you're 65 and 75 years old. Um, and Abraham is going, God, how in the world is this going to uh, come to pass? And so now we fast forward to chapter 16 of Genesis. And it's been 10 years since they left Haran. It's been 10 years since God called Abraham and promised him all of these promises that are dependent upon having a son. And Abraham is getting impatient. <laughs> and Abraham's going, God, um, I was an old man when you called me. And now I'm just an older man. <laughs> I'm not getting any younger here. Like, how in the world is this going to happen? And uh, you see that um, by the time uh, Ishmael is born, he's 86 years old, it says. So it's been 11 years uh, that he's been waiting for a son. Now, I feel like you have to understand the agony of what this is like to really understand the value of waiting on the Lord. Because... Um, Realistically, they're not just waiting 10 or 11 years for his son. He's, he's 86 now. Um, I would assume that Abraham and Sarah got married when uh, Sarah was a teenager, when Abraham was in, was in uh, his early 20s. And so he's been waiting more like 60-plus years for an heir. Um, in this time, having a, having a child was everything. I mean, it wasn't like they made a lifestyle decision to just not have children, right? There's no real birth control options. Uh, and, um, but more than that, in the, in the ancient Near East, uh, having children was your retirement plan. Uh, there's no social security. You've got no 401k. Uh, if you're going to survive, uh, you know, to a, an older age and to retirement, uh, you're going to have to have children who are going to continue to take care of you. But maybe even more than that, having a large family was universally recognized in that time as a sign of God's blessing. And so imagine Abraham, he's rolling into this new town and he's got his household with him. I mean, dozens and dozens of people, servants and, you know, like household staff. It's like Downton Abbey is rolling into town. They're not going to go unnoticed. And everybody knows he's supposed to be something. And everybody's talking about how the boss doesn't have a kid, though. <laughs> how in the world, you know, every time Abraham goes to the grocery store, it's like, hey, Abraham, how's that whole kid thing going? <laughs> uh, his neighbors are going to ask him about it. Um, everybody's wondering where the son is. And, and, and here's the thing. I mean, everybody's thinking, you're following God. You're the one who's supposed to be blessed. It doesn't look like, your life doesn't look like a blessing your life looks more like a curse, Abraham. He's a senior citizen. It doesn't look like God is blessing him. Now, let me just pause and ask the question, does that resonate with you at all? The sense that um, I'm living my life 
and it doesn't seem like it is living up to the expectations I had for it. It looks like everybody else is outpacing me. Um, maybe you're married, but you're struggling with infertility. Maybe you've spent all this time going to school and studying and getting degrees, and you're accumulating debt to go along with it, and you finally finish this time of preparation, and then the job is like not happening. <laughs> it doesn't feel like it's going the way that you expect. Expected. Or even plodding away at years for work. Maybe you're trying to grow your company or you're trying to sell your company or you've got these goals that you're trying to reach. And uh, it just feels like every day is a fight over and over. And you wonder, God, how much longer until you've come through for me? Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your kids. You've got teenagers and you're worried about them or older kids. They don't seem to be living life the way that you would have sketched out for them. And you wonder, God, are you going to be faithful? God, are you going to show up? God, what are you doing? Where is God in the midst of this, and why is he taking so long? Okay, now that's been life for everybody. But what makes it worse for us is we have Instagram and Facebook where nobody posts pictures of, like, my life really fell apart today. And so every time you're bored for half a second, you pull out your phone and scroll through your feed, and you see your friends from high school and college who apparently are just killing it. <laughs> like, meeting with world leaders, and you're like, what is wrong with me? Life is passing me by. And we wonder, God, don't you see what I'm doing and what I'm going through here? And God, would it be so hard for you to just answer my prayers a little bit faster? Can you just help me out? Okay, so that's the question. The question then is, what are you going to do with that? Like, when you find yourself in that situation of, I want to be faithful to God's promise, but he is taking way too long to answer, to come through, what are you going to do with that? Because that's where Abraham is here in Genesis 16. And uh, he's waiting, and he's going to have to wait another 13 years until, until Isaac is actually born when he's 99 years old. But Abraham doesn't want to wait 13 more years. We don't want to wait. Uh, we don't want to wait for 15 seconds, let alone 15 more years, you know. Um, and so what happens is his wife speaks up. And, uh, and Sarah, Sarai, I'm just going to say Sarah, and her name gets changed to Sarah, and it's easier. <laughs> so his wife speaks up, and they make a plan, and God is taking way too long. And Sarah says, why don't you take my servant, my Egyptian servant, Hagar, and, uh, and sleep with her, and maybe she'll conceive, and, she'll, and we'll get the child that way. And so what are they saying? They're saying, okay, we want to be on this kingdom of God plan. We want to be on the program of following God's promise, but God is taking way too long. So let's just help God out a little bit. Let's just speed the process up here. Uh, the goal was to get a kid. He never said whose kid it was going to be. So just, you know, uh, let's just do this. And, um, and uh, Sarah says in verse 2, the Lord has prevented me from having children. You know, there's this subtle, like, it's God's fault. He's not coming through. So go sleep with my servant Hagar. She does, and Hagar gets pregnant. Now, at the time, I don't know if this felt uncomfortable as I was reading that. All of a sudden, it's like, whoa, this is a little bit uncomfortable, isn't it? Um, 
was a fairly common practice in the time. It was considered, you know, it was illegal, it was considered socially acceptable that uh, if, uh, if a couple was struggling, especially a patriarch like Abraham, if they were struggling with infertility, yeah, you just take somebody else and he's got multiple wives and it's no big deal. It's expedient. It's a pretty good plan and it works. They got a child, didn't they? And everybody said it was fine. But the problem is that uh, that's the way it worked in the culture, but God didn't say it was fine. Um, and what they're doing is trying to like, in a sense, it's like they're forcing God's hand to say, God, like, you're taking too long. We're just going to get this done for you, God. Um, they can't see God in this, and they can't see how, how he's going to come through for them. And so they take matters into their own hands, and they rush into this decision. Uh, they're following God's call, but in their own way. They're doing God's will, but they're doing it in their own timing. And uh, I, I think one word that we could use to, to, to describe what they're doing here is they're grasping they're, they're, they're forcing, they're rushing, they're not, they're not waiting. They're not waiting on God. It's this sense that unless I do something, nothing is going to happen, and so I guess I better make this thing happen. Um, and so they take things into their own hands, and it works. <laughs> Praise God, you know, Ishmael is born, except uh, almost immediately there's problems, right? Um, Hagar and Sarah have this tension. There's tension in the household, and then... Um, and then because there's tension between Sarah and Hagar, then there's tension between Sarah and Abraham. And then eventually, if you know the story, when, uh, I mean, Abraham basically forgets about the, the promised child for the next 13 years until Isaac's born. But eventually, when Isaac is born, there's going to be tension between Ishmael and Isaac that, that we know continues to this day with the Arab-Israeli conflict. Uh, so what I want you to see here is this, that when we don't wait on God... When we rush into things uh, through our planning and scheming and striving and grasping, when we, when we try to force God's hand and we don't wait on the Lord, uh, there are consequences. The result is just a, it's just a mess. Uh, it's just a mess. The result is just a mistake. And it might have been the right thing to do. Uh, you know, in our lives, maybe the thing that you rush into, it's the right thing to do, but it's the wrong time to do it. Or maybe it's the right thing to do, but, uh, but you just ran over people to get it done. Or uh, you didn't take the time you needed to lay the foundation. Maybe there's turbulence in your job and you're thinking, I don't know what's going to happen. And so you just, you just quit or you just, you know, sometimes you force, you know, you can force a situation where they'll fire you, you know, and then you're, and you're well, now what am I going to do? Like we rush into it and there's, there's a, you know, there's a problem. It's consequences. And. I can speak with some authority on this matter because I am somebody who has been rushing into most things most of my life. <laughs> um, fairly proficient at it, and the result is often very, very bad. And, you know, um, here's a thing I've learned in the last year, starting a new church. It doesn't happen quickly. Okay, here's the other thing about when you rush into things. It's what's, what's clear to everybody else is not clear to you at the time. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I know, we've been watching you. Yeah, okay, I get it. <laughs> it doesn't happen quickly, and I'm, I'm learning, but, but here's the thing. When we refuse to wait on the Lord, we rush into important decisions. So much of the time, the result is just a mistake, and it's clear to everybody else except us. Let me say this. 
Um, let me let me just say this because I know some of you are like you don't like this idea of waiting. Let me say this: the the, the point of waiting is not to wait. It's not the goal. Uh, this isn't like an excuse for laziness, or this isn't an excuse for inaction. The the, the point of waiting is to be content in the Lord, no matter what He does, so that when we do act, we are following. God, we are keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. The goal for Christians is to use our lives following God into the world as he works through us to build his own kingdom. So waiting isn't an excuse for laziness. And if you take it that way, then you're misunderstanding what I'm saying here. But we're not real comfortable with mystery. And one of the mysteries of the Christian life is how often God calls us to follow him. And through his you know, word and spirit and through his people, God, God makes it so clear what he's calling you to do. And you begin to follow him out into the world and then nothing happens for so long. You're like, God, did I miss something? Or how did I get here? And, uh, and, and then God calls us to wait, to wait on him. It takes so long sometimes to uh, his promises take so long to reach fulfillment, and so part of growing in wisdom as a follower of Jesus is learning when it's time to act and when it's time to wait. You know, we graduate from college in our 20s, many, most of us, I, I would uh, expect, and um, you graduate from college in your 20s, and you think, man, I'm going to take on the world, and I'm going to do something great. And it looks on the internet like everybody else is doing something great. Here's the thing. What is, what God tells Abraham, I'm going to make you great. God wants to work through you. But we live in a culture that uh, makes it seem like you should be on the top of the world by, your, by the time you're 30. I read this thing um, uh, a couple months ago. Somebody had done a... Uh, uh, a survey of what it takes to live a lifetime of leadership and ministry, and just uh, you know, followed people for years and generations, and and his conclusion was that uh, a life of leadership and ministry, the first fifteen to twenty years, is just about what God is doing to prepare the leader to actually be healthy. I'm at your thirteen, guys, so. Keep praying for me. <laughs> Why in the world would you like go to, like, you understand? You graduate college, you go to grad school, whatever. You're okay, I'm ready to take on the world. And God says, okay, the next 15 to 20 years are going to be just waiting. Man. All the while, our culture tells us you're behind the eight ball, that it's not true. And God is not in a hurry. And if we're going to live a life of faith, we're going to have to learn to wait on the Lord. Okay, so what does it actually look like to wait on the Lord? I want to give you four kind of time periods. Uh, moment by moment, day by day, week by week, season by season. Um, uh, disciplines that, that God has used in my life in the last year. None of this is original. Um, but what does it actually look like to wait? Okay, moment by moment, this is going to seem like the tamest thing I've ever said, but take a breath. <laughs> um, you know, 
you're, you get in these situations, you're in a, having a conversation with somebody and somebody says something, they, they ask a question that feels like a challenge. <sighs> Just take a breath. <laughs> because our, our, our response so often is to respond with defensiveness or to just kind of run away or to be aggressive. Um, or maybe it's when somebody sends you an email or sends you a text. Just take a breath, just wait, okay? Moment by moment, day by day, um, day by day, I would encourage you to explore the practice of silence. Uh, one of the things over the last several months that I have, have done is God has been at work in me is, is um, in the mornings as I'm starting my day, many days uh, in prayer and in scripture, I'm just spending time in silence. And uh, I'm up to now like 10 minutes of silence. I wouldn't encourage you to start with 10 minutes. I would encourage you to start with like two minutes because it's so hard. And there are rarely more than a few seconds in our lives. As you go through your day, there are rarely more than a few seconds of prolonged silence that we encounter. Um, but one of the things that happens in our fast-paced um, you know, life, it, when you get in line, you get to, I don't know, you're having lunch, you got to wait in line. You have 10 seconds, you just pull out your phone and scroll through your social media, check your email, whatever. And what we're doing is we're training our bodies to experience an immediate result, and it makes it almost impossible to wait on the Lord. And when you begin to... Um, you begin to practice silence and build that into your life. Uh, scientists, doctors, neurologists say it actually begins to rewire your neural pathways. And you become a person who can actually breathe and, and, and wait. It will change your life. <laughs> uh, this isn't new age mysticism. This isn't what our culture calls mindfulness. It's a practice found throughout scripture of being still before the presence of the Lord. So day by day, but then also week by week, uh, there's an ancient Christian practice. It's found in the Old Testament. It's the fourth commandment. It's called observing the Sabbath. Um, practicing the Lord's Day, Christians in the New Testament, one day a week, every Sunday, setting aside one day for rest and worship. Um, you know, Christianity is, is the only religion that has ever dared to say you don't come before God based on what you do, but you come before God based on what he has already done on your behalf. And so it is, is unique that Christians are people who uh, one day out of every week can stop and say, you know, the God who created everything that exists out of nothing with his, just by his word, by speaking it into existence, he's probably going to be able to get by for 24 hours without my assistance. It's a way of getting into our bodies the reality that we have to wait. We have to wait. We need rest and worship. And then season by season, I, and I'm sure this is going to be the, probably the most confusing of these kind of four ways that this fleshes itself out that I'm going to mention, but season by season, face your shadow. Face your shadow. What that means is this, that all of us have strengths. All of us have gifts. All of us have things that we're good at. And your shadow is sort of the like negative consequence of your strengths. And um, in our culture, in our world, it's probably just human nature. We have this tendency to think we can just outrun our shadow. 
Um, but the reality is that these things catch up with us. Um, so let me give you a few examples. You know, maybe you're a kind of a laid back, go with the flow kind of person, and everybody loves you. The shadow of that might be that you're terrified to have difficult conversations. And so there's these things in your life that just kind of keep piling up and you don't ever want to address them. Or maybe you're a strong leader and you're okay with taking risks and making bold decisions. The shadow might be that you run people over and you don't listen to people. Or uh, maybe you're a very analytical person. You're really good at kind of staying on top of all the details, seeing the big picture. The shadow of that is that you have a hard time trusting anybody else's instincts. Um, look at Abraham. Um, he's a great planner, isn't he? There's a famine. I got a plan. Let's go down to Egypt. Um, Ten years later, still no sun. I got a plan. Let's... Uh, sleep with a servant. Have you noticed that the shadow side of Abraham's plans is that his wife always takes the short end of the stick? Just over and over and over again. I think often what God is asking us, what he's doing, what he's asking us to wait is he's asking us to face our shadow, to stop trying to outrun those things that are just there in our lives, but turn around and face them. Repent of them. Talk them through. Apologize. You may need to you may need to talk with your pastor. You may need to talk with a counselor. Um, you will not outrun your shadow. And it takes time to learn how to trust God and to learn to learn through experience that what he tell, to learn through experience what he tells you in his word that his promises are never going to fail. His promises are never going to let you down. You can stake your life on it. God's promises will never let you down so you don't have to keep trying to outrun your shadow. Now, you might say, how do you know that that's true? How do you know that if you wait, like, the opportunity isn't going to pass you by? How do you know that if you wait on the Lord, seek counsel, um, then you're not going to miss out on real life. How do you know that God is never going to let his promises to you fail? Well, here's how you know it's true. Because when you became a Christian and God came into your life, God said, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be, you're going to be mine. I'm going to be faithful to you. And God has never failed to keep his promise to be faithful. Except there is one time that God kept his promise by turning his back on someone. Last week, Trevor talked about in Genesis 15 how there, there's this really strange passage, beautiful passage, where Abraham's saying, God, how can I know that you're going to keep your word? And, um, and God tells Abraham to get these animals and to cut them in half, and then Abraham falls asleep, and a uh, flaming torch and smoking pot passes between the the pieces of the animals while Abraham just sleeps. And what, what in the world is going on? What God is saying is, while you sleep, I'm going to do the whole thing on my own. And I would rather tear myself apart than be unfaithful to my promises. And so t 1,800 years later, God comes into the world. He takes on flesh in Jesus. And the night before Jesus goes to the cross, he in the garden, praise God, I am going to be faithful to the promise that I have made to redeem a fallen world to you. But if there's any other way than the cross that I can do that, 
could we please go with that option? And he gets no answer. He gets the silence of God. And so Jesus goes to the cross. The one time in human history that by keeping his promise, God turns his back on someone. And Jesus on the cross cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Why have you abandoned me? He's met with silence. Why in the world? Jesus, the one per- like, I can kind of understand God saying, you know, I told you I was going to keep my promises to you, Bryce, but you haven't done anything wholeheartedly in your whole life. So I don't need to keep my promises to you, but why didn't God keep, why does Jesus get the, God's back, why is he forsaken by God? Jesus is forsaken by God because God is keeping his promise to redeem a fallen humanity. It's the only way to do it. So as Jesus gets the, the silence of God, the promise is being extended to you and to me that God will be faithful to his promises and he will never leave you or forsake you. Friends, that is great news. That is great news. On the cross, God keeps his promise and turns his back on Jesus so that we can, so that God can keep his promise and never turn his back on you. God keeps his promise and tore himself in two on the cross so that he can keep his promise to you without tearing you apart in the process. Jesus took the punishment that we deserved. God kept his promise by turning his back on him so that he can keep his promise and never turn his back on you. So let me finish with this. We are all waiting on something. We're all waiting on something. You know, we're waiting for a promotion or a raise. We're waiting for a bigger house. We're waiting to graduate from school. We're waiting on our kids to... You know, some of us are waiting on kids. Other ways, others of us are waiting on our kids to leave. <laughs> We're all waiting on something. Here's the thing about waiting. We think that um, when we're waiting on something, we believe that we will be content when we finally get it. And it's not true. And so waiting on the Lord is the discipline of just pausing until I'm content in God and in Him alone. And I'm content to say what Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. The purpose of waiting isn't just to wait. Wait doesn't mean don't. It doesn't mean inaction. It means wait before you act. Waiting on the Lord. Wait on the Lord and action will come. And it's through the disciplines of waiting. Moment by moment, day by day, week by week, season by season that we begin to get into our bodies what Christians confess to be true with our heads and long to be true with our hearts. That we have a God who is faithful, who is with us. We have a God who is worth waiting on because he will absolutely never fail to keep his promises. Pray with me. Oh God, thank you that you are worth waiting for. And God, as we uh, sit here this morning with hopes and dreams of what you might one day do in our lives, God, would you help us to become people who are able to wait 
because nothing worth doing has ever happened quickly and you have never failed to uphold a single one of your promises. And so God, we love you. We love you. Would you fill us with your love that we might be people who go out into the world confident that you are at work in us and that because you're at work in us, you'll be at work through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.